Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, does our country need a national bird and what should it be? One expert is making the case for the Gray Jay or the Canada Jay. We find out why. We look into why the Foreign Affairs Minister is in full damage control mode today after it was discovered a representative of Global Affairs Canada attended a Russia Day event at the Russian Embassy in Ottawa on Friday despite all our condemnation of the country over its illegal invasion of Ukraine. We get an update on the markets to find out what's driving them down these days and why cryptocurrencies are crashing. We hear why Canadian beef producers are bucking against a Health Canada move to add warning labels to ground beef, which would make this country the only one in the world to do so. But first, a 29-year-old Toronto man has been sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 25 years for that van attack that killed 11 people in Toronto in 2018. We find out why so many families and friends of the victims of those who survived were in court today to share their stories at the sentencing hearing. Well, first up tonight, this is one of those stories you just never forget when you heard about it happening or or what you first thought when it did. One of Canada's worst mass murderers learned his fate in a Toronto courtroom today. Alex Manassian killed 10 people when he drove a rented van down a Toronto sidewalk in April 2018. He was convicted of 10 counts of first-degree murder. Today, after the court heard from many of the families and friends of the eight women and two men killed that day, as well as survivors of the attack, Manassian was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. Kathy Riddell survived the attack She was one of those who spoke at the sentencing hearing today. I took my opportunity to speak to him because I didn't get that chance during the trial because it was on Zoom. So we had a face-to-face and I I said at the very beginning, it's what I wanted to do and I'm saying my piece and whatever happens from it happens from it. But at least I spoke up. Omar Najjar's father Munir was killed that day and he said being there was tough. It is four years on, but it's still very tough to to remember the the the, the, the ugly details. You know, you, you you start dealing with your loss, but then there are all these ugly details that you you forget. You just at the end of the day, it's a loss. Justice Anne Malloy choked up as she delivered her sentence, saying every single one of these lives were precious. Well, joining us now from Toronto is Global News senior reporter and longtime crime specialist Catherine McDonald, who covered the attack and the trial. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Ben, my old colleague yes. from Global News Toronto days. In, indeed, yeah, we, we've, we covered some crime over the years. But this one, Catherine, I have to say this one just felt so much worse than some of the things that, that we've seen. And you've been covering crime in Toronto for years now. Um, yeah. Just the impact of this case, it must have been, and then coming back to it today, you know? Yes. Well, you know, I sat, I, I covered the, the, the case when it started. Um, the details were so disturbing. Of course, it began uh, with this um, man named Alec Manassian. And, you know, I remember the first time he was in court and the, the, you know, dozens of media that surrounded his father, and we wanted to know more. We wanted to know why. And then I started to uh, learn about some of the victims, but so many of them were not from Toronto. And so, I, you know, I knew some of, some of their stories, but today was the first time that we heard the stories of all 26 victims. There were 11 who died uh, and 15 who survived, but many of them have life-altering injuries. In fact, Manassian was only convicted of the first-degree murder of 10 people. But in October of last year, a woman who was left a quadriplegic and who never got out of hospital died after three and a half years. And her niece told the court 
that uh, they thought she would live a few weeks or maybe a few months, and she somehow battled for three and a half years. And when she did uh, gain consciousness, she would wake up and ask about the other survivors. Uh, You know, I mean, this was such a heart-wrenching day, listening to that many victim impact statements. There were about three dozen. uh, And these were stories that I hadn't heard so many of them. And a number of people uh, who survived were talked about their friends who they lost. They were out for walks on Young Street. Um, It was a beautiful, bright uh, spring day in Toronto in April 2018. And all of a sudden, this van came, you know, barreling down the sidewalk. And I spoke to people who survived, who woke up in hospital later, who didn't see the van coming. One woman whose best friend was killed. Um, Another woman who was in hospital when she came to, she asked about her friend. They were both students and it it took her more than a month to find out that her friend had been killed after she asked and asked and asked she finally got taken into a room with a social worker and that's when she found out her friend was dead and she told that story and it was heart-wrenching to listen to and you know some of the survivors live with terrible guilt that they survived and others some of them got a lot younger uh, you know died and they had their lives ahead of them what was it i mean it must have been and I think people had forgotten about this because the trial was held virtually. This was the first time that the families of the victims and the survivors ever had a chance to basically tell him about the impact of that day. Yes. And you heard from Kathy Riddell. She was one of, that was, I interviewed her today. That was that soundbite you played was me talking to her outside court. She is a remarkable woman. She actually, right before the van attack had recovered from, I think, double knee surgery. She'd had replacement surgery she actually, um, she said she got a chance to finally speak to him. She said, you know, why? Why, do you, why did you do this? Why, you know, you with your pathetic life, because we heard in his interview that he gave police that he felt isolated, that he felt alone, he felt rejected by women. You know, of course, the defense argued that he was not criminally responsible, but the judge didn't buy that defense. So it appeared that, and of course, he re- referred to the incel movement, which um, you know, there's a bunch of men on the dark web who are rejected involuntary celibates. Uh, they're men who have been rejected by women. This appeared to be a misogynistic attack. Of the 10 people who initially were murdered, eight of them were women. And so there was a lot of discussion today in court about the fact that he targeted women um, and because he was angry. And why did he take this out on women? Um, you know, Kathy's, Kathy was incredible and I've interviewed her before, but she really said to him, like, why did you do this? Do you have any guilt for what you've done? And, and she's a blind woman and she doesn't see him, but she has her niece sitting next to him, to her as, as the niece is reading out the statement and she's, you know, very capable and, and her words were really poignant. She says, does it haunt you the way it haunts me? Despite, um, you know, she says, I think about the 11 people. Do you even feel a little bit guilty for what you did? You arbitrarily decided that I and 25 others didn't have the right to live. I pray there are very few in the world. And we heard that from other victims. Uh, one woman who I interviewed, actually, she survived at the time. Her name was Dina Risen. She also, through a victim impact, which was read out, talked about, and she's in her 80s, how she fears for her own daughter because she fears there are other Manassians out there. And she said, you know, you said and you, you told police that you, you aim to kill 100 people. I fear if you ever get out, you might want to try again. And I think 
you know, the fact that he was only sentenced to life in prison for with no chance of pro, for parole for 25 years scares people. But the reality is offenders like Manassian, if they ever get a parole hearing, they won't get out of prison. And if and as Justice Malloy said, you know, if if he ever did, if there would be strict restrictions on his movement. However, um, you know, I, I covered Bernardo's, Bernardo's parole hearing last year and Bernardo is eligible for a parole hearing every three years and can tell you having sat through that I, I i was actually you know really emotionally disturbed by the end of that hearing because even though he's been in prison for 30 years he the words and what he said with the families of the victims there was so jarring and upsetting so yeah. i understand why victims and their families don't want to have to go through this and by the way He's already served four years of this sentence, so he he will be eligible for parole in twenty one years. No, exactly. And, and did he say anything at all? I mean, he's rarely said much. Did he react at all? He didn't. I, I gather he didn't. No, speak. he. I mean, look, I was I, I was sitting uh, behind him. He was wearing a mask. He, he seemed to stare straight ahead. Uh, the grandson of a woman who was killed said he was a coward. He never looked at me. He he delivered a victim impact, and he said that this man didn't look at him. And as you know, I mean, the judge, when she handed down her sentence in March of last year, so 15 months ago, she didn't name him. And she said, I don't want to name him because that would only feed into his need for notoriety, which she spoke about in that interview, which this long police interrogation on the night he was arrested, that gave us some insight into him. And I, I watched that interview many times and dissected it. And it was played in the in the trial. You know, frankly, we've all heard enough from him. And when he was when the judge asked him, do you have anything to say? He said, no, thank you, Your Honor. And I think everyone was relieved because Honestly, nothing he could say would make anyone feel any different about how they feel about him, which is that he's a monster and that he's a very sick um, man who, you know, not he obviously not mentally ill, but sick and that he he's he really um, what he did was just so terrible. And so, you know, the trauma that exists in this city is still there. I can't drive down Young Street between Finch and Shepherd without feeling, you know, a lot of anxiety, because I remember being there and covering this event for weeks. I'm speaking with Catherine McDonald of uh, Global News in Toronto, senior reporter there, longtime crime specialist, covered both the uh, aftermath of the attack and the trial today. Uh, we're talking about Alex Manassian being sentenced today to life in prison, no eligibility for parole for 25 years. And we'll get to that a little bit after, because this is the first case where this recent Supreme Court ruling uh, that struck down uh, keeping people in jail longer before they're, eligi- uh, before they're eligible for parole came into effect. And you did mention how the families were thinking about that. I was going to ask you a bit more of that about that just after this. Global News senior reporter in Toronto, Catherine McDonald, is our guest this half hour. We're talking about the sentencing today of the man responsible for killing 11 people uh, in a van attack on a Toronto street back in 2018. Uh, sentenced today to 25 to life in prison without eligibility for parole for 25 years. Uh, but this uh, sentencing came at a time, is it really just a month after the Supreme Court of Canada declared it unconstitutional uh, that judges impose parole ineligibility for periods of 25 years to be served consecutively instead of concurrently. So back in, I gather, Catherine, back when the, the guilty verdict was handed down, the Crown made it clear it was going to seek this consecutive uh, eligibility for parole. So he would have been obviously in jail for many, many years. Uh, but now he right. is eligible for parole in 25, and he's not an old man. Um, that must have been weighing on the family's minds today, as you mentioned. Yeah, and you know, as the as the judge called it, stacking periods of parole ineligibility, which happened in a number of cases since the law came into effect in 2011, it was happening, and it, it likely would have happened in this case. And now these uh, victims 
are, are going to have to go to, to a parole hearing should he be granted a parole hearing just because you apply the judge said it doesn't mean you get one uh, but you know the victims are vowing to be there and to speak out and you know one woman who really struck me today she was actually a civilian who was a first responder she she helped she tried she called 911 she was trying to organize um, emergency responders she said i will be there be there she says, I, I couldn't even, I can't, I had to move jobs, she said, because I couldn't even walk down that part of Young Street without feeling triggered by memories of that terrible day. And, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, the judge actually made a point of saying, you know, while many of you may be upset that we, we can't now um, sentence cons- to consecutive periods of parole and eligibility, she said, it's the right decision. It was a unanimous decision. And she urged people to read the decision. Not just read articles, but she said, I support this decision. And so, you know, this is uh, the Canadian justice system and this is the way it is. And so that's what we have to accept. And she said, I support this decision and I agree with it. And, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, just because he is eligible for parole doesn't mean he'll ever get out. He will likely be declared a dangerous offender. And um, unfortunately, yes, there will be parole hearings sooner than later. It's rare for a judge to weigh in on something like that during sentencing, though. It, it is, uh, obviously, she was well aware of, of, of how this would be received. Yeah, and she actually said, I must address the elephant in the room. Uh, she says the decision of the Supreme Court is crystal clear, its impact, and it's binding on me. Stacking up period of parole in, in, in ineligibility was declared unconstitutional. And she says all of these sentences must be concurrent. And she's going, she goes, I'm going, I'm not going to repeat the words of the Supreme Court of Canada here. She's a very senior judge. Um, she, she, uh, I don't think she's worried about anyone calling into question what she's saying here. And she's supporting the Supreme Court. She says, um, this is the highest court in our land and its reasoning is impeccable. And then, as I said, she says, everyone should read this decision. Uh, so, I mean, it's the way it is and she isn't letting people question it. I, I guess one of the things that struck me today, and I guess this is always the way when you go to these sentencing hearings, is just the, it, there's no, there's not even a lot of anger. It's just the pain that you hear. No, look, there are some people who were very angry, um, and uh, quite a few people really looked at him and 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 expressed their anger. Um, but a lot of people, like you said, they wanted to make it more about their loved ones than this man, who many of them, as I said, don't even want to name because they don't want to give him what he sought to achieve, which was infamy. And, you know, I feel um, one of the families that really strikes me is the family of Anne-Marie D'Amico. They've been quite vocal from the beginning. And as I said, many of these families I hadn't met, but I had met Anne-Marie's family. She was a 30-year-old woman who worked in the neighborhood. She was out for a walk. I think she'd gone for coffee. Anyway, the family has started a foundation in her name, um, which is, you know, basically about violence against women. And I found Anne-Marie's father, Rocco, to be quite incredible today. He, he called this van attack Canada's equivalent to 9-11. Um, and he said, you know, they, they all were wearing purple sweatshirts, the whole family. Many of them gave victim impacts. And he says, he, he, he appeals to uh, Manassian by, by saying, if Anne-Marie had known this murderer, she would have tried to find the best in him. His hate and rage towards women controlled him. All that carnage for a place in history. And then they go on to say this appalling attack gave rise to a foundation in her name. And they've, be- they've become proponents, you know, and, and advocates against domestic violence and violence against women. And, you know, they, they've, uh, they have a fundraiser every year. 
Um, but so yes, there's a lot of anger towards him. I, I, I think it would be wrong to say that people are just remembering their loved ones, but mm-hmm. no one wants to say his name. Uh, we, we've, you know, families ask me, uh, the family of one man today, uh, Omar Najjar, his father was killed and his father was visiting from Jordan. And he said, please don't name this man. And I said, it's tough for us to do this story without naming him because people, you know, if we didn't name him, it would be difficult to find the story. For example, when you Google van attack sentencing. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's an, it's a tough, it's a tough one. And I, I totally get it. And I try to say his name less than I might uh, with another uh, offender and certainly mass murderer. There are many words monster that go, you know, I use to describe him, but you're right. Alec Manassian is 29 years old. I, I sorry for saying his name. I, I just said, I, I try not to yeah. say it, but he's yeah. 29. He's going to be eligible at 50 for parole. And then he'll be eligible again at 53. So that's yeah. that's terrifying, and that isn't that long away when you think about it. I've I've covered cases in Toronto where the guy got life, and guess what? The families are calling me and saying, "Can you come to the parole hearing?" Uh, and that's how long I've been working in Toronto. But it's yeah. it goes fast. Oops, Catherine McDonald. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Great work as always. Thank you, Ben. Nice talking to you. A trick question for you. What is Canada's national bird? The answer is that officially we don't have one. And that seems like a cry in shame. Uh, But there is a new effort taking flight, so to speak, to name a bird to take its place as a national symbol alongside the maple tree, the beaver, lacrosse and hockey, the red and white. Uh, And my next guest is championing this guy. I hope I got the right, hope I got the right one. I am hoping that that is the gray jay or the canada jay <laughs> apparently one of the things is if you get it wrong if you put the wrong you know the wrong um, bird call on people know instantly and <laughs> we'll tell you about it uh so last decade the gray jay or the canada jay beat out the loon the snowy owl and even the canada goose in a nationwide vote um but it was never officially adopted by the federal government which as it turned out didn't really sanction the project. So the uh, push is on now to try and find us a national bird, which sounds like a really good idea. And joining me now to sing the praises of the Canada Jay is David Bird. He's a retired ornithologist and a professor emeritus at McGill University in wildlife biology. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Welcome. Welcome to the show. My, my, my pleasure. <laughs> so why don't we have a national bird? I, I, I imagine I, I was I'm always surprised to remember that. Well, first off, um, the name Gray Jay is actually uh, old history now. Um, oh, it's, it's, it's now the Canada officially Jay now, called. Sure. Right. It's now officially called the Canada Jay, and to many Canadians, it's known as the Whiskey Jack. We can talk about that later. Um, but you were asking me um, why we don't have a national bird. Well, you, you, I think you covered that with the uh, with the aftermath of the uh, contest in 2015. But right. why should we have one? Um, 106 countries in the world have them, and another 20 or so have unofficial ones. And our, the best example, of course, is the United States to the south of us. They've got um, uh, the bald eagle, which they revere greatly. And uh, you can find bald eagle sim- symbols all over the United States. It's the logo of the U.S. Postal Service. They fly train bald eagles at big sports events and so on. And um, birds... Um, are uh, a really good visual symbol for us, sort of like our flag. Uh, They clothe us, they feed us, they eat insect pests, they pollinate our plants and and crops, and uh, they um, also help to enrich our lives. A scientific study came out recently that that, uh, concluded that if you have birds and bird song in your life, then you will lead a longer, happier, healthier life. 
So I, these are yeah. all good reasons why we should have a national bird. Uh, David, we, we've had a we've had a hummingbird come visit us recently, and it's changed the course of changed the course of our month of May. It was great. Yeah, uh, they're, they're they, quite they, quite marvelous little birds. Yep. Yeah, but they're not so, the best uh, bird for a national bird for Canada. They're not the best bird for national bird for Canada. No. So the Canada jay, uh, this is something that you've you've espoused for a while. Why do you think the Canada jay is such a good a good fit for for us? Well, I could give you uh, eighteen reasons as outlined in the book where they are, but we yes. don't have time for that. But I'll give you the the sort of the the short version. First of all, the birds um, the bird breeds in every province and every territory in our country. Its range almost mirrors our borders. There's a slight incursions into the uh, uh, Alaska northeastern states and also the north uh, western states but by and large this is pretty much an all canada bird and um it uh embodies the uh the um canadian spirit so well it's first of all it's extremely friendly and trusting uh, they'll come down to your hands and sit on your head and so on at on ski trails or uh, uh, uh hiking places and so and that sort of thing and um and they're all looking for food, obviously, but they um, um, will come down even if you don't have food in your hand. They're just that friendly and trusting. Secondly, they're a member of the corvid family, so they're extremely uh, smart birds. I think among the smartest birds in the world, crows, ravens, jays, and magpies. And thirdly, they're ex- very, very tough. They don't migrate like most other birds do. They stay here all year round, and they can sit on their eggs at minus 30 degrees centigrade. So you've got tough You've got friendly, you've got intelligent. Uh, I just think that that embodies the Canadian spirit. Sounds like the Canadian spirit to me. That's uh, that's yes. so what are the ste- what are the steps then to try and um to try and get this recognized? How does that work? Well, uh, we were disappointed that the uh federal government didn't uh didn't step up to the plate when first of all we had uh, Canada's 150th birthday. That came and went with no announcement. And then we had a huge ornithology conference in Vancouver with the federal government present in 2018 and still no announcement. And then we got the old name back, the Canada J. That was quite a feat to do that. And, um, uh, and so still no announcement. So I began to think, well, gee whiz, what is it going to take? And uh, so I got together. I, I assembled seven other authors and a whole bunch of photographers and painters, including Robert Bateman. And we put together this 80-page book. Um, it's a, a very colorful book with lots of photographs in it, but lots of good information about why we need a, cash, a national bird, why it should be the Canada Jay, and all kinds of cool facts about them, and also perspectives from um, uh, Francophone uh, people in Canada and as well as First Nations, and, and also suggesting things people can do. And the book's selling for nine ninety five in better bookstores and nature stores, uh, Amazon, all that sort of thing. And we encourage people to buy that. Another thing that people can do, Ben, is to go on the website, which is simple to find. It's just, just type in canadaj.org, and there's a petition there. And we desperately need people to sign that. We've got about 15,000, but we need to get to 100,000 before the federal government will pay attention. And the most important thing is, is that uh, just a few days ago, we put this book into the hands of all 338 federal MPs with a letter signed by me in French and English. So I'm hoping that they spend some time over the weekend reading it. I'm not expecting them to do something in time for this coming Canada Day. It takes time for people to, you know, for seeds to grow, but I'm kind of hoping for something maybe for 2023. 
Well, I mean, I'm sure if they have, if, if they were to, even to listen to you talk for a few minutes, I think they would be convinced. I, I, you're, that was, you know something? <laughs> that was Elizabeth May is my MP. She's for the Green Party. And yeah. uh, it took me five minutes to convince her when I was in her presence. <laughs> to me, it's just, it's just a no-brainer. There, I mean, if you think about other birds, the common loon, yes, it won the contest with the most votes, but it's Ontario's bird. Shouldn't even have been in the contest. Same with the snowy owl. That's Quebec's bird. So we can't elevate one of those to a national status. And so um, uh, the Canada goose, some people throw at me, but you know something, the Americans are killing them because they're nuisance, nuisance birds down south of the border. We don't want Americans killing our national bird, do we? <laughs> no. So you're really, it's really hard to come up. Other people suggested the raven, but the raven's already taken as well. I think it's with uh, uh, Yukon or Northwest Territories. And um, 99.9% of Canadians can't tell the difference between a crow and a raven anyway. So uh, really, you just couldn't find, and the, the French name for the Canada Jay is Mésange du Canada, and oh, the, the, word, the yeah. scientific name is Parasaurus canadensis. So this bird's got Canada written all over it. And you, did, you were heavily involved in making sure that that name came back, right? Because it was the Grey well, Jay. That's why I got this wrong off the top. It yeah, was, a gray, it was uh, well, the Grey Jay for a Well, you're not the only one. A lot of people still yeah. call it the Grey Jay. I mean, it was called the Grey Jay since 1957. It was changed to, uh, from Canada Jay to Grey Jay by an error uh, of the checklist committee uh, in, in those days in the States. They're the ones that decide oh, really? what, what names birds have. And so mm-hmm. Dan Strickland, to give him full credit, uh, really didn't like that, that they did that. And so he put together a proposal. I was part of it, but it was really all of Dan's hard work. And we put a proposal and sent it to them, and without even mentioning anything about a national bird status. And they said, yep, you guys are right. We made a mistake, and we're going to make it right. And they gave the name back, Canada Jay. So the, right. the name Canada Jay doesn't mean anything any, anymore. But Whiskey Jack is another popular name, and there's a lot of right. controversy about the derivation of it. It has obviously comes from indigenous peoples, but um, whether it's... Uh, some have said it was from this one word, whistleskak, that means mischievous prankster, but apparently that's not true. It's another Cree word, but it's one of the only vernacular names that's um, been borrowed from the indigenous languages for a bird, a common name for a bird in our country or in North America. And is it, and is it used right across the country, uh, David? Is, is Whiskey yeah, Jack used it, everywhere? pretty much. The Maritimers I've talked to uh, who love the bird all call it the Whiskey Jack. BC people, as soon as you mention, first they say Canada Jay, and then you say Whiskey Jack. Oh, the Whiskey Jack. And then right, Albertans okay. the same. So I, a lot of Ontario people, I, I think it's, uh, I'm not pushing the Whiskey Jack name all that hard because um, I think people might get the wrong um, intention or, or the wrong idea about what the whiskey means. It has nothing to do with the beverage. It has <laughs> to do with the to derivation of the Cree language, and that's the way it should be. Ah, interesting. I, I grew up in Quebec, so I just had, I, 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 I went to McGill. Well, I went to McGill. We all went, oh, we you're both kidding. Did. Now, you went to McGill. Both, I, yeah, I, I went to McGill. They were both here. For 35 years. I know, yeah. I know. I used to interview when I interview you when I worked in Montreal, but that was a long time ago. So oh, the, uh, yes, that's right. So, so what we, we have some other suggestions from our, our our faithful listeners here. The blue heron or the kingfisher came in. I know the kingfisher is uh, someone mm-hmm. else's bird, I believe. But well, no, the kingfisher's not. But the great blue heron is um, uh, is a is that taken or not? I don't know. But the point is, the great blue heron is just as common down in the United States, and so is the king, the belted kingfisher. They're nothing, there's nothing special about those birds. And they're also, you know, they're not tough like the Canada Jay. They leave in the wintertime to go south. And so, you know, I mean, any, any bird you throw at me, I could shoot it down for various reasons. You can't yeah. come up with a bird with 18 reasons why it makes 
sense for it to be our national bird. There's, you can't even uh, sure. come close with any bird. No, no snowbirds allowed. Uh, the seagull, the seagull and the pigeon got a few votes as well. Just well, because we, if you're a city dweller, you're so familiar with them. I know, but people are are actually they're actually killing those birds as well at airports because they're nuisances yeah. sometimes. And I like all birds. Don't get me wrong. And pigeons, of course, are poisoned by some people. And and a lot of the public thinks that they're they're you know they're they get a bum rap. They think that they're dirty birds, but they're not really. They're cleaner than you think. Yeah, and the rock dove was the last one we got in here. Well, a rock rock dove, rock pigeon actually is the same thing as a as your feral dove. It's the same name. Your, same yeah. thing. There you go. Now, now, now you know. Uh, so, listeners, know just one more time the name of the book and where they can go find this yep. petition. The the name of the book is the Canada Jay, the National Bird of Canada question mark, and uh, better bookstores, nature stores. Amazon and so on. The book's there. $9.95. We're actually taking a bath in it. The publisher, uh, Hancock uh, Publishers that did the book, um, are losing money on the book every time we sell a copy, but they believe in the cause. And so, but also, just to remind people, go to the website. It's www.canadaj.org and sign that petition and get all your friends to do it and your brothers and your sisters and uncles and everybody else and help us out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, you're, you're going to see this one through no matter what. I know this is. Gonna I, I'm going to. I'm going to keep doing this until I die. I kid you not. So, <laughs> uh, uh, what, we got a few. A peregrine falcon or the osprey. You know something. Uh, the osprey is um, uh, already out there. Uh, what yeah. bird? Is, what uh, I'm, I'm forget what province that is. Um, uh, one of the maritime problems might be Nova Scotia. And the other one you said peregrine falcon. Well, yeah. I mean the peregrine falcon is a great bird. Except peregrine falcons are found all over the world. Um, they are the fastest thing on earth, but they're uh, found all over the world, and uh, they're also migratory as well, except in the cities. So they're not as tough as a Canada Jay. <laughs> I'm convinced. I'm convinced, uh, David. Yes. I'm, I'm convinced for the Canada Jay. I'm going to go sign that petition now. Uh, well, oh, thank, thank you, you so much for uh, for uh, thank. You. Welcome. Well, here we are, both on Vancouver Island. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Yes, it was my and, pleasure. Uh, All my pleasure. Thank you very much for calling me. Yeah. Have a great night. There yeah. You too. Bye bye now. Well, remember last hour I said we we're going to look at some head scratchers tonight. Well, this one you need to like use both, you know, all 10 fingers to scratch your head for this one because it's so absolutely ridiculous. So on Friday, the Russian embassy in Ottawa held a Russia Day event. Russia Day was actually yesterday. Uh, it was, it's basically to honor Russia since the end of the Soviet Union. Anyway, it's a celebration and uh, there were some dignitaries there, but there was someone from Canada's Global Affairs Department as well. A deputy chief, protocol chief, was there. And uh, I think people found out because the Russian embassy tweeted about it and said a GOC representative attended our celebration today. And you think, what? How could that possibly be? Well, for at first, when Global Affairs Canada was rep- responding to the Globe and Mail saying, well, you know, that's just the way things are. We're trying to keep up diplomatic relations, etc. Uh, the foreign affairs minister quickly backtracked on that. And here she is again today. Uh, backpedaling as fast as she can. The reality is this should never have happened and this will not happen again. Um, I'm the minister and the buck steps here. And so I share the frustration and the anger of Canadians regarding this issue. Again, as I mentioned, the Russian embassy gleefully posted it to Twitter that someone from the government of Canada had been in attendance at it. It just, it boggles them. How could they do this? How could they attend that event, given all that's going on in the world? Well, one person who is certainly concerned about it was Ihor Mikhilchishin. He's the CEO and executive director of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, and he joins me now. Thanks for the invitation. So just first reactions, uh, what did you make of uh, when you found out that there had been a 
Government of Canada representative at this event? I was quite surprised uh, when the reporter called me to ask my reaction. I, I asked him to you know, confirm and to make sure he had the right information because we certainly didn't want to... Um, we didn't want to uh, fall into the, you know, the Russian propaganda that somebody had been invited but not actually showed up. So uh, he confirmed. He confirmed it with the Canadian officials, with the Russian embassy. And, and as you can see in our statement, we're you know, appalled and uh, disturbed that uh, somebody, this is not a junior staffer, that sort of uh, somebody in the diplomatic uh, relations world thought that it was an uh, appropriate idea to, to go you know, on Russian National Day, which is a celebration of Vladimir Putin and his his ambitions to, um, you know, apparently colonialize much of Europe and in the in the style of Peter the Great, that uh, that this was this was a great place to sort of have a Canadian representative. But we'd already. I mean, you mentioned this uh, just briefly when I was first talking to you. I mean, the mayor of Ottawa already was aware not to raise the Russian. Said no to raising the Russian flag for for Russia Day, which was yesterday, actually. Um, you know, people were well aware of this. How how is it that our own diplomatic corps, essentially, you know, the 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 brain trust of our foreign affairs policy, wouldn't see that this might be a problem? I don't have an answer for you, other than to say that it's 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 uh, it's. So it should be disturbing and shocking to us. And I think perhaps, uh, you know, we hope uh, not totally representative of how the government operates, but there are there are many different uh, parts of Global Affairs Canada. And it definitely seems that they are not uh, they're not cohesive on their Russia policy. Uh, and, you know, on a broader scale, we have to always ask, we always ask that question, is the government of Canada whole? You know, we, we talk about defense, we talk about foreign policy, we talk about humanitarian aid, we talk about now refugees, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's really about cohesiveness and um, a unity of purpose and voice. And I think this is a spectacular failure on that part. Uh, and we hope not representative of a, a broader government approach. Certainly, the minister has come out uh, quite forcefully after initially after the department said this was just, you know, this wasn't such a big deal. I guess Melanie Jolie was quite uh, unequivocal in her, at least in her, not apology, but recognizing that it was a bad idea. Is that enough? I mean, yeah, it, it, there's definitely some awkward meetings there between the, the spokespeople for the minister and her own department and on what their policy is on, on Russia. Um I mean, we we have been calling for the Russian embassy in Canada to be to be closed, to be those diplomats to be expelled uh, for months, and so that that this is a great reminder of that uh, that it, 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 it they are actively uh, promoting Russian interests in Canada. This little you know garden party is the latest. Uh, there's a disgusting Twitter account that puts out lies every day about about the war, about Canada, about Ukraine. Uh, we do not we do not understand why the Trudeau government is is reluctant to uh, shut these disinformation sources down. Uh, yes, we would you know the Canadian embassy in Moscow would probably be shut down, but we we do not uh, we don't have any, any evidence that the Canadian embassy in Moscow is providing any value added at this point in terms of, of, of you know any kind of relationship with the Russian government. I suppose part of the issue here too is the Russian uh, embassy was only too happy. To uh, to make it be known that there's sure. been a representative of the Canadian government there. Oh no, they're crowing about it. They think it was a diplomatic coup that they can now, you know, sort of embarrass the government uh, in terms of their. On the one hand, they say these things. On the other hand, they support Russia and its great national day. So I think that was uh, we played right into their hands.
on a broader scale, and you mentioned it earlier, but on a broader scale, where does the concern then lie? If you've been saying all along, listen, you know, you need to have a unified message here, because the obviously the government of Canada argues that it does have a unified message against, for you know, condemning this war, calling it a war crime, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you make a mistake like this, and then you have to wonder, well, wait a second, who's sitting around the table having these conversations, you know, oh, yeah, there's a party to celebrate Russia Day over at the embassy. I'll just wander on over there. It just seems like you can't even imagine how that got through the, uh, the, the sniff to the smell test, so to speak. Well, and, and it, as you just said, there's conflicting views within the department on that. And I mean, we have in the past had, uh, you know, our, our organization has been around for a long time and there, we know there are a variety of views within academia, within government on the need to have dialogue with Russia. And in the past, various ministers of various governments have had that kind of, even in the Americans, you know, we need to reset or we need to, you know, the, the, you, you see these articles, I think at this point, I don't know that anybody could even write that, you know, uh, straight face anymore and sort of present that kind of, oh, you know, Putin is just a misunderstood person that we need to, we need to reach out to him and reset. So, I mean, we've heard that throughout the years through from various government officials and academics and journalists. And I think uh, many of those people who are friendly to Russia have been silenced recently, but they're not, they haven't gone away. Uh, and so there is certainly a, uh, uh, you know, it's not an organized group of people, but there are people whose views on Russia are more friendly than than I'm comfortable with within, you know, various uh, parts of Canadian society. So, I mean, now that we've reached a period of this of this conflict, whereby, you know, within Ukraine, there's still a lot of concern that maybe attention is being diverted abroad, that people are starting to look away a little bit, uh, play into Putin's hands on that front. Uh, what does this sort of event, what could be the repercussions of something like this? Well, I think I think if if you know if we believe, and I, I think it's pretty clear that the Russian government, the Russian army, uh, is committing genocide against the Ukrainian people. There's talk of war crimes. You know, I was just in Bucha, Ukraine, last week. We we literally walked around the the place where there was a mass grave site. There's photo evidence. International teams have been there to document to excavate bodies. Uh, there's a horrendous, uh, you know, rape and murder campaign that these soldiers, uh, un- Russian soldiers, undertook. And then we read the news today, you know, the Russians are shelling uh, thousands of positions across Ukraine. If we if we believe that is true, it is, is seemingly unequal to then go and celebrate the Russian state or to, you know, celebrate the greatness of Vladimir Putin as the Russian leader. So I think I think we just have a, it's a it's a tone deaf example of what I'm worried about could be a, a broader you know, in the West, there is there is this kind of alleged Ukraine fatigue. Uh, we we've gotten normalized to the war. We've gotten used to hearing about terrible things happening in Ukraine, and we're not shocked by it anymore. Um, and it's you know, it, it's a terrible reality that the war has gone on for more than a hundred days, but it's it's not stopping. And and our our attention not being paid to it doesn't mean that it goes away. Uh, the victims will are there. The you know the the shocking images. It's just we're getting numb to it in in many ways, and um, it's becoming horribly normalized. Ihor Mikhailchishin, there, the CEO and executive director of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, talking about a relatively high-ranking uh, member of Global Affairs Canada being at a 
Russia Day celebration at the Russian embassy on Friday. Now, of course, the Canadian government or Melanie Jolie is backpedaling today. But really, what were you thinking? What were you thinking when you thought it was a good idea to go to that? Well, it was not a happy day on the markets today with both the TSX and the S&P 500 seeing sharp drops. Canada's main stock market stock market tumbled back into correction territory today. Well, Wall Street is back in the claws of a bear market as worries about inflation and higher interest rates overwhelm investors. Meantime, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were collapsing in price today after the major crypto lender Celsius halted all withdrawals, citing, quote, extreme market conditions. Go figure. Well, joining me now to make sense of all this is Brett Chang. He's the co-host of the Peak Daily podcast. Brett, uh, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be with you again, Ben. So what's happening? It was a pretty bleak Monday on the markets. It was a really, really bad day on the markets. And there's a bunch of factors to take a look at, but really the main one being inflation and interest rates. So new inflation numbers came out last week in the US, the consumer price index, and it hit another high of 8.6%. And now there's fear that the Fed is going to increase interest rates by potentially uh, 0.5 or 5 basis points or 75 basis points. Wow. And that's coming up, right? That's coming up on Wednesday? That's coming up on Wednesday. So something to keep an eye on for sure. Um, so what happened today overall and where are we seeing a sell-off? Yeah. So we have entered what many call a bear market. And so the S&P 500, which is the index that tracks the kind of 500 biggest publicly traded companies, that took a, a steep drop today, uh, the steepest drop in, in recent history. And so they're officially in a bear market. The TSX hasn't gone that far down into a bear market territory yet, but they're in what they call a correction phase. And, and that likely will lead into a bear market. And you're seeing sell-off across all types of assets, really just over this fear of higher interest rates, which makes money more expensive to get, and investors start to pull back and move their money into safer assets. And unfortunately, for many stocks, that, that's, not that, that's not that for them. Um, we saw something from Manulife today just on interest rates and those with mortgages. So people here already feeling that pain. I guess part of the reason that the markets are down is that there is this idea that central banks are not afraid of raising interest rates, but that's also having some consequences on, uh, on others, on just individual homeowners in this country. It, yeah, it, it matters across the board. So if you're a homeowner and you have a variable mortgage rate, uh, what will likely happen is that rate will go up. And for many people, that begins to get tough to pay that monthly payment. And if that's you, what you have to look at is essentially either one, finding new employment or getting a raise, or two, which is tough to do, by the way, in this current economic climate, or two, you have to sell your home. And so the Manulife study showed that I think it was one in 10 Canadians uh, plan to sell their homes if interest rates do go up. And so that's a, a really telling figure of what you can expect to come with the economy. Because we're going to see, we suspect, another interest rate hike from the Bank of Canada coming up relatively soon as well, and potentially a big one. Yeah, they're going to follow the Fed. They will likely do the five basis points, but it's becoming increasingly likely that they might do the 75 basis points simply because the main objective of the Bank of Canada is to reduce inflation. That's their role is to control inflation. And they have a target of 2%. And where inflation currently sits, it's nowhere near that. And they, and Tiff Macklin, the, the governor of the Bank of Canada, said that he's going to act aggressively to bring it back down. And, and aggressive action is a significant increase in the interest rate. There must be fears here, though, of the balance. I know we're talking they're talking about this in the U.S. today with the with the Fed announcing uh, potentially what we we know another hike on Wednesday is just the danger of, of pushing everything into recession right now. 
Well, what investors are looking for from central bankers around the world is what they're calling a smooth landing. So this is a way for them to bring inflation back down, but also avoid plunging the economy into recession. That's becoming increasingly tough the further along we go. There was a lot of speculation that inflation may have peaked last month, but with the latest numbers, it appears that that's not the case. And the important thing to remember is that the numbers that we're seeing, these are lagging metrics. The, anything we do now is only going to stop it from go increasing over the next month and beyond. And so the, the central bank's hands are really tied. And then unlike other uh, economic downturns, they just don't have a lot of tools available to them. You can't decrease interest rates because inflation is so high, which means you can't pump money back into the economy. Cryptocurrencies are having had another, speaking of things, having a rough day. Uh, what's happened there? There's been yet another development that's caused all sorts of panic. Well, big picture is that now with interest rates going up, that 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 investor money are looking for safer investors are looking for safer places to put their money and cryptocurrencies are not the, the safest place. So that's the kind of macro trend happening. What happened today though is there is an exchange called Celsius. They pitched themselves as a replacement to banks in that they would allow you to deposit and save your cryptocurrencies. And they were offering really, really high interest rates, interest rates that you would never see uh, a normal bank offer, like an 18% annual yield. Now, what's happened is that they have been unable to repay much of that yield because of the drop in cryptocurrency prices, and they had to cease all withdrawals of any of cryptocurrencies on their platform, which meant that there are many people who had you know, 10, 20, 30, $50,000 in these savings accounts that they can no longer access, and there's really not much recourse for them. And so that's really tanked the markets, the cryptocurrency markets over the past day. It would sound like very bad news for Celsius too, if they're essentially a bank, if they can no longer pay their creditors or pay and, their, holder, their deposit holder. Yeah. Absolutely. It's really bad news for Celsius. And what's interesting, the Canadian tie-in here is that CDPQ, the second right. largest pension fund, uh, the, pension, the primary pension fund in Quebec, they're a major investor in Celsius. They invested, uh, I think, in the range of $400 million into the exchange. And I, I think it's looking like very tough times for Celsius. Now, I'll be surprised if they make it through this. Yeah, the case de dépôt et de placement du Québec is a is is a huge pension fund. Again, the second largest in the in the country after the Canada, Canada pension plan or Canada pension fund. Um, so what what now for crypto though? Is is this are we going to watch the bottom fall out even further here? Is is this going to be a, an across the board thing? And how low can it go? It's already plummeted. At least something like Bitcoin is down significantly. It's a great question, and I wish I knew. Look, you know, if you had asked me three weeks ago when the whole Luna UST debacle happened, where UST depegged and lots of people lost money on that, which was, by the way, at the time, the 10th most active cryptocurrency on the market. After all of that, I thought we'd hit the bottom. I thought at that point, things would have stabilized. But every new incident that happens, and Celsius is just the latest one, it's really hard to predict what's next. I, I think as of right now, it's likely that it will go even further down, but it's really tough to call where that, that floor is. Brett Chang, thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. We have a few head scratchers for you coming up today, and this is certainly one of them. So I don't mind warning labels. I think they're important on some things. I don't know how much people pay attention to them, but they're important. Well, now a group representing Canadian ranchers is pushing back against proposed new health labeling that they say vilifies beef. Dennis Laycraft is with the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. He says, Health Canada is unfairly singling out his industry with proposed new rules that would require ground beef as well as ground pork and ground lamb to be sold with a warning label declaring it may be high in saturated fat. He says ground beef should be exempt from the rules like other meats, milk, fruit, vegetables. 
taking single ingredient food products and imposing these type of labels is again not being done anywhere else in the world and it is going to you know unfairly uh, affect uh, Canada's cattle farmers and ranchers. That's Dennis Laycraft uh, with the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. So Health Canada will be adding labels to foods that contain 15%, 15% of your recommended daily intake of sodium, sugars, and saturated fat, not each of them, uh, one at a time. Uh, but the organization said the move, Health Canada that is, was not meant to be a warning, but rather a way to give consumers more easy access to information. As I mentioned, ground beef, pork, veal, and lamb would be included in the changes. And as Dennis mentioned, that would make Canada the only country in the world to include such a label on ground meat. Now, the issue here is that multiple food items will be excluded. That includes some processed foods, uh, but also dairy, eggs, and most vegetable oils. So what gives? Today, the Alberta government stepped in, Agriculture Minister Nate Horner saying the move would drive up costs for consumers during a period of high inflation that uh, producers who are already struggling would also be hit hard. Well, with more on this, joining me now is Tyler Fulton. He's president of the Manitoba Beef Producers. Tyler and his family also have a cattle farm near Bertle, Manitoba. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thanks for uh, having me. So, you know, I, I really hadn't heard of this up until very recently. Was this something that was on your radar for a while? Well, we got first kind of notified, the beef industry got notified kind of of some changes um, way back in... 2017 2018 um and then and then really it got shelved uh i think during covid they had other you know obviously other uh priorities and uh it was only just recently brought back in march of this year and uh, and so it's been um we've yeah as an industry um and, and an industry organization we've really been um trying to get up to speed and and get ahead of this thing because um it it's been a pretty tight timeline, um, March to, uh, you know, proposed proposed uh, regulation time of going to Canada Gazette 2 in possibly just a few weeks. So for listeners who, who don't know what uh, what this proposal is, it's essentially warning labels on a whole bunch of food, right, for different reasons. But why would why would ground beef be singled out? <laughs> well, that's um, that to me is the head scratcher. I I have really a, a difficult time reconciling um, how it is that uh, that ground beef got included, and I say that because ground beef is the only well ground meat. Uh, so I'd include ground pork on this as well. Um, is the only single ingredient product um, that is not exempt from these new rules. And so what Health Canada is actually proposing is to put a label on ground beef, whether it be extra lean or lean ground beef, um, that uh, says it's high in saturated fat. And, um, and it doesn't make a ton of sense because, you know, there are several other products out there that are also only single ingredient products that did receive an exemption um, but, uh, ground beef is not one. Um, and so we, we are, are struggling to really wrap our heads around why it is we were singled out. Yeah, Cause I can understand that there's a lot of processed foods that are being included in there. Really it's, it's to make healthy living, eating choices, but it seems like there are a whole bunch of things out there, uh, that, that fall into that category, but other things like, you know, obviously eggs and milk and so on aren't included. Right. So I'd imagine that you're fighting to be included amongst those groups of exempt, exempt products. 
Yeah. I mean, really, the distinction here is single ingredient. So it's only beef that's going into ground beef. Um, there's no other additives or, uh, or ingredients to it, um, much the same way as there would be for milk. Um, alternatively, there are some other ultra processed products that are also exempt for different reasons. I, I can't speak to the, the reasons why, but um, it, uh, it's confusing to me um, because at the end of uh, coming from the, the last Canada food guide up update um, the, the theme that kind of came through on that was that generally they were recommending consumers not you know, moderate their consumption of ultra processed foods. And, uh, and so when you, you know, when there's a a new regulation that's proposed, where it would slap a label on, on a unprocessed food product, a single ingredient product, that is simply just ground meat, um, it, uh, it, it really makes you wonder what it is that's motivating, it confuses the issue, because if they start if consumers start to move away from ground beef then it's likely that it's going to be a more processed product that they move to yeah i mean i think 50 percent. i was reading that 50 percent of the beef sold in canada is sold as ground beef so what is the concern on your end here about what the repercussions of something like that could be yeah so that's that's really what uh why we're involved um and when i say we and we were uh, i represent um not just the manitoba beef industry but um also uh, i i sit as a representative on the canadian cattlemen's association and our members are it re- this issue really resonates with our members um they see it as a major concern um that could affect our viability, the viability of our farms and ranches. Um, at the end of the day, if there's a label on a package of beef that says you know, that it's a warning label, um, then quite simply, it likely would impact the demand for that product. And um, f- so for full context here, it's been a struggle the last three or four years in the beef industry. Um, margins have been tight. And then we've had these weather events like the drought of, of Western Canada of last year. And, um, and then also the, well, an ongoing drought in some places. And then also more locally in Manitoba here, um, the sequence of, uh, of storms that have really negatively impacted our, our farms and ranches. And so you stack all of these things on top of one another, um, you know, adding another hurdle of, uh, of this um, factor that could impact the demand for the product, for our product. Um, and it really, uh, it, it raises some, some concerns amongst our members that it could be just the last, um, the, the last straw that broke the camel's back. How important is ground beef then just to your viability for most from you and, and most of your colleagues? Yeah, so it's it's really important. As you said, it's it represents 50% of the beef that's consumed in Canada. Um, and more directly, it's a little bit of a nuance, a little bit of detail here. Um, Manitoba is largely a cow-calf based industry. That means we're raising the uh, the young stock that will go to feed yards for fattening for steaks and those higher value higher valued cuts um but one of the most kind of direct connections that we have with consumers is in ground beef the the 
main ingredient of ground beef um, are actually our cows, our older cows that, you know, have spent seven to 10 years on our farms. Um, and, uh, you know, and now we're, we try to get value for them in, in, in selling them as food products. And, and so the, the, one of the issues that kind of comes from this is that because most of the meat co- that comes from older cows is for is a ground product, um, it really impacts our bottom lines at the end of the day because it's it's the closest that uh, many cow calf producers here in Manitoba get to the consumer. So it really takes away a whole revenue stream for you. I'm speaking with Tyler Fulton, president of the Manitoba Beef Producers, and uh, he has his family farm near Brutal, Manitoba. We're talking about this uh, this idea from, or at least this move by uh, by health authorities to uh, to place warning labels on uh, on ground beef, a health warning label, really by Health Canada. This was something they're doing more broadly for nutrition labeling on a lot of prepackaged foods. They're really trying to target things high in sodium, sugar, and saturated fat. But as Tyler points out, uh, ground beef would be one of the few single uh, ingredient products to be singled out, so to speak. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about just how difficult it is to, uh, to try and get your point across to Health Canada in these sorts of affairs. And that's coming up. I'm speaking with Tyler Fulton. He's the president of the Manitoba Beef Producers. He also has a family farm near Brutal, Manitoba. Uh, we're talking about Health Canada's a move to put to warning labels on a whole wide variety of foods, really to try and uh, warn consumers about uh, about sodium, sugar, and saturated fat. But much of that is for prepackaged foods, processed foods. In this case, they're also proposing that ground beef uh, be included in that, and that certainly caused a lot of concern amongst uh, cattle farmers across the country. Uh, Tyler, how does one um, make their point known to Health Canada in this, and just how difficult is it, you know, process is it to deal with with that bureaucracy? Yeah, it's um it's difficult. We uh you know, we try to engage directly as directly as we possibly can. Um but it is a, like you say a large bureaucracy um that has a lot of I think political influence on uh on on this rule. Um you know, really when we sit down our standpoint is this. Ground beef is a, a nutrient dense versatile popular um, food product that consumers love to use at home. Um, they, in fact, um, when in a, in a survey done, uh, 89% of Canadians will, cons- will purchase ground beef in the retail store, in a grocery store every month. That's an overwhelming majority of Canadians that are doing that. And so, what we what we try to lay out to uh, to Health Canada and to um, the MPs uh, that we've met with over the course of the last several weeks is that this just confuses the issue. Um, if you slap a label that says high in saturated fat, it simply overlooks all of those nutritional benefits that ground beef bring, including just a high protein source. Um, and high in iron, zinc, and and vitamins, um, and and so why confuse the issue and really probably route them more towards some some more highly processed products. Not to mention these days with affordability issues. I mean, it, it is, uh, and you can you might want to explain to listeners why this is, but it really is now one of the more affordable products that you can get at the grocery store. Absolutely. Uh, now more than ever, food, secu- uh, food security is uh, is a major issue, um, and uh, and and ground beef is 
is absolutely an inexpensive um, center of the plate um, product. That is, you build the meal around it, um, and it's it's healthy. It's you know it's made um, with you know it typically is an ingredient in so many different products um, that support you know good healthy eating, um, and so. From a, it's probably important to note that from a consumer standpoint, meat prices are high. There is no doubt about it, and ground beef is no exception to that. The reality is that you know the at the at the farm level, we've not yet seen um, those price increases, um, and it it relates to the fact that our value chain is very complex, and it takes a long time to kind of get those market signals back. Um, but suffice it to say. Um, Things are tight at the farm, uh, and uh, and if we get something that impacts the negatively impacts the demand for our product, um, it, it threatens, I think, the viability of mo- of hundreds of operations across Canada. So you're not. I mean, you, when you go to the grocery store, you're seeing those same prices now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I mean, best case scenario you hear, they, you get through to them, they change this rule. Uh, what, are the, what other scenarios are there at this point, do you think? Well, it's a really good question. I, I mean, I'm hoping that we, um, you know, that, that we make our, our case uh, solid, that, um, that it is not overly politicized and that um, there's some fairness that's kind of, you know, that starts to enter into the, the picture. And when I say fairness, what I mean is um, equal treatment for other, you know, as compared to other single ingredient products. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a different tack, but um, equal treatment to those products from other in other countries. Um, so this is also a concern because we can, because we export 50, almost 50% of our beef to other countries, we're really reliant on those trade relationships. And so it's a concern of ours, actually, that if can health Canada goes and puts this regulation into place, other countries may view this as being a barrier to, to coming into Canada. And we simply can't afford to have those, um, those fights or those, the thickening of the border um, that slows the, you know, the, the two-way trade between the United States and ourselves and, and, uh, and tons of countries around the world. So you're concerned, I guess I gather this would be the only, we'd be the only country in the world with this kind of warning on ground beef. Are you concerned that other countries uh, would use this as an excuse to try to keep you out? I think there's, there'd be a solid argument there, but, but also there might be trade action that be, that could be placed against Canada of which beef could see a, a negative, uh, a negative effect from that trade action if they believe that we are putting up these barriers, these new regulations to prevent their product from coming in, um, then it's, uh, it's only going to make our case in their country more difficult. So you feeling optimistic about this? Well, uh, I mean, I've been at it for now pretty solid here for two or three weeks, um, reaching out, trying to talk to as many different people, uh, MPs, um, even provincial politicians and, and then, and, and of course, media sources. Um, I, ha- I do feel like there's an overwhelming, um, support, uh, for our, for our position. And, uh, and so 
my my hope is that common sense prevails and and that we can get an exemption for ground beef um yeah, I, against this rule I guess you're really just looking for fairness here as well, right? Because there are some clear uh, issues with just the, the 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 equity of how this is being rolled out. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big motivator, and I think that's that's really a factor that really resonates with our members. Um, they know that they can't afford, you know, this extra this extra barrier, this extra hurdle. Um, on their farms. And so when they see that there are other single ingredient food products that don't have to deal with this hurdle, um, I think it's, it's an issue that really uh, sticks with them. Tyler Fulton, thank you so much for explaining the issue to our listeners tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. 